I'd like to do is I'd like to continue our uh, our study through the Psalms. We are in Psalm 10 tonight. Um, I'm going to take some time and read um, all 18 verses of Psalm 10, but we're going to focus our, our attention mainly um, on the last three verses, but we will um, hit certain high points throughout the Psalm. Let's look at Psalm 10. This is verse 1 of Psalm 10. Uh, why, O Lord, you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain cures and renounces, curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them. Draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and says in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to you. The helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come, Father God, and to preach through this psalm. Father, I pray, God, for my preparation this afternoon, Father, that it was that it was right, Father God, that it was diligent, that I didn't uh, leave anything out, Father God, but that I sought you, God, through every single verse of, of this psalm, Father. I pray, Father God, that that was as with everything we do, that the cross is preached through every sermon, Father God. That the cross is preached through every single verse of the Bible, Father. That we would not superimpose it, Father God, but that you would draw out through every verse, Father God, our understanding of the depths of the need of the cross, Father God. We love you and we thank you, Father God. As you please, God, to bless us as we gather. Give us, God. Courage, Father, to face truth tonight, because every time we come together, Father God, truth is what we wish to hold up and what we wish to compare our lives and our hearts and our minds to. We love you, God, in the name of Christ Jesus, Father, whose precious blood, God, takes away our sins. We pray now, Lord. Amen. Look, as fragile human beings, men, we can feel as if we are at the mercy of every destructive, profoundly immoral and wicked force around us. And it is our natural state to be... Um, harshly judgmental toward those who are not us, to be harshly judgmental toward the world and its forces, especially when it seems, in a day and age like we have now, where it seems like they are inclined against us. When it seems like, um, even within our lifespans, if it's, even if it's not very long, that the nation we at once lived in seemed to at least tacitly endorse Christian values 
a, a Christ-centered worldview or mindset. And it seems like it doesn't do it anymore. So we can be very, um, we can be very uh, strongly opposed to the world in those situations. And look, I'll say this. No single writer within the Scriptures expresses the inherent angst of the Christian life. Then, then Paul does, especially in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. And this is what Paul says. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. All the terrors that God's people suffer through daily somewhere. Somewhere worldwide, there's a Christian right now groaning underneath that very burden. It may not be you and I today. It may be you and I tomorrow or, or the next day or our children or our grandchildren facing real oppression from the state, from the society around them. Right now, it's, it's more mild. We probably shouldn't be able to say that we suffer the way believers in other parts of the world, in, in Iran or, or Iraq or Afghanistan, in China or Vietnam, suffer the way they do right now, at this moment. But somewhere, someone suffers just like that. Throughout the church, universal and invisible. And they're summarized for us in this passage. I, they're, they're not just incidental things. They are broad terms. Paul's painting a word picture of what it means to be a, a believer. Using the first three terms so effectively. I, I, I pulled out those first three in the Greek because I thought it was important that we look at them in their total. Paul begins by asking a rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, of course, his answer is going to be, well, no one can. We are inseparable from the love of Christ. We cannot be separated from the love of Christ because that would in, in, indicate not a weakness in ourselves, but a weakness in Christ himself. It is the power and the infinite uh, love and beauty of Christ that allows us to be maintained with Him and not our own abilities or, or lack thereof. We can't be separated from Christ. But then he lists these, these calamities. He begins with tribulation. One of my favorite words in the Greek, clipsis. It, it means to twist or to turn in the Greek language. Literally, the trans, it's translated as pressure which rubs together or squeezes. It's specifically the feeling of being hemmed in with no escape from the circumstances. Being hemmed in. Next we get the word distress. Snokaria, which means difficulty or anguish, or to be caught in a tight space. We, now the, 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 the picture's forming a little bit. One is to be rubbed in so closely and have no way to escape, and another one is just to be that feeling of, of claustrophobia. Of just being caught. Being overwhelmed in a way. Means difficulty or anguish. Or to be caught in a tight space. Finally persecution. It's the Greek word diogamos. Which means to be chased or pursued. Now those three terms taken together as an aspect of a great portrait of the suffering of God's people. It, it looks like, now besides the descriptors of famine or nakedness, danger, so we understand those things right. I understand the fact that the crops might fail or, or that we might not literally have enough to, to cover ourselves. We might be so poor that we are literally paupers, holes in our clothes. Danger, literal danger, are the sword. We understand what it means to face violence. 
And throughout the, the Christian community worldwide, there has been violence inflicted upon us. There's no doubt about that. But, but what we get is a picture that says that God's people are often going to feel under immense pressure. Squeezed in from all sides. Uh, that the, the safe ground underneath our faith is underneath excuse me, our feet is being is being slowly chopped away till we have so little safe ground. Squeezed from all sides, held claustrophobically captive by the circumstances around us. Like the enemy is closing in tighter and tighter and tighter. You know, in the Middle Ages, we built churches to look like a fortress to defend God's people against invaders, to defend the, the innocent and the weak against, against invaders. And uh, we, we can feel again like, like this church is a fortress, like it is protection. It is a place where God's people can come to be themselves, to display their faith openly, because outside is nothing but hostility. That we are pushing against restraints they refuse to relent. That the harder we push, the, the more, with the more strength they push back. The once we felt like we could defend ourselves, we can feel very quickly that we can, simply cannot defend ourselves at all. Pursued by powerful foes. And finally, as Flipsis uh, tells us, hemmed in on all sides. Nowhere to turn. The anger and aggression which is directed toward the church from the loss are characterized when Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. That's verse 36. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Paul's depiction of what it means to be us. Sheep to be slaughtered. Killed all day long. And if you think about just the 20th century, gentlemen, in terms of the Christian faith, it's the century of martyrdom. We've just emerged from the century of martyrdom. And we emerged from the century of martyrdom to beheadings by radical Islam. To strain and to strike at an enemy that is everyone and everything. We kind of understand that now in the midst of a global pandemic in which we now have an enemy we can't see. We don't know who to avoid. All of a sudden, people we've known our whole lives feel almost like an enemy, don't they? Not that they are, because we love them dearly, but we're afraid. And sometimes we can be driven by fear, can't we? We can be alienated not just by the strength of another, but by the fear that dwells within us. Battling an invisible enemy is, is, is very much akin to Paul's, Paul's idea here that everyone's an enemy. Everyone hates us. Everyone cheers when Nero dips us in pitch and uses us to light his garden. That the, that the Christian faith has no defenders outside its, its own churches. Has no sympathy outside of its own churches. That everyone and everything without and within is the, it's the maddening portrait of the church's existence within the human world that everywhere we look we find enemies. Everywhere we look. But now... As disturbing as this image is, it's enhanced when we consider what the psalmist says, what David says in Psalm 10, where the enemies are described this way. Arrogant, wicked boasters with curse-filled mouths, murderers of the innocent, 
men and women who lurk in ambush for the poor and helpless in order to crush them, to murder them. That's exactly how Paul spends verse after verse describing this. This is not anything. These are wolves. These are not people that we should, Brother Brian, reason with. These are people we desire to protect ourselves and our families from. I know there's a very common thing in the Christian faith to paint the picture of the world with as gentle a brush as possible because they are our mission field. We want to reach out to them. We want to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the wonderful thing about the Scriptures is it gives us both a command to go forth armed with the gospel, to preach the gospel to the nations, to do as we've talked about here many times, to, to literally preach the gospel and be martyred, because that's the gospel plan for the entire world. That we would do that. And we would understand that that is absolutely our call. But at the same time, we would have the understanding that the world we minister into is not gentle. It's not pretty. It's not easy or okay. That the world we minister into is hateful. The world we minister into is blinded by its own sin. Deluded. Completely in denial. And so in denial that it will act violently and aggressively to protect its own darkness. That we simply cannot go forth in the world, send men and women in the world acting as if it's nothing. Acting as if that you are, it's just fun and games to stand on the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic. Or to, to get into a plane and travel to, to a, a foreign land. Because it's not. It's not at all. It's very deadly, serious business. And that the forces aligned against us are absolutely willing and capable of taking lives. So, let's, let's continue to look. So if we, we've painted that picture. I think the words of the wicked reveal the content of their character. They do. If we look at just the quotes from the wicked within Psalm 10, we're going to focus a few minutes on that. And it, it reveals the content of their character but it also represents that malady for which repentance is the only therapy. It gives us a treatise of what it really means to be lost. So once again, I, you know, we've talked about this gentleman many times. That we don't, we, 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 we will understand the idea that we were all lost. But we don't want to paint ourselves as idolaters. We don't want to paint ourselves as, as, as perverted. We don't want to paint ourselves as, as haters of God. When the scriptures are very clear, we were all of those things. So as we look at these descriptions, one of the things we must remember is this, that these are, uh, the, the, we are these people. They are not some other separate people somewhere. We were all just like this. And if it were not for the saving grace of God, when the church is martyred, we would be one of those throwing stones. There is no doubt about that. In verse 4, the wicked say, there is no God. Could not be more simple a statement, but yet profound. The lost world is denying the existence and authority of God. It is both denying God's existence, but also at the same time, boldly denying the authority of God over them, despite the clear evidence of creation. The Bible is abundantly clear. They have no excuse. It is evident what our God has done 
in the created world around us. But yet, the world still says there is no God. By definition, the presence of unrestrained sinfulness in the lost creates denial in their hearts. When my sinfulness dwells within me unrestrained by the grace of God, by the goodness of God, by the mercy of God expressed to me by the blood of Christ, through the gospel to save my soul, when, this, when all that dwells within me is sin, when all that dwells within me is sin, it breathes in me a denial. There is no God. I will either boldly declare it or simply put world, I will live that way. I will either with my mouth deny God or with my life deny God or more often than not, both. Both ways I shall deny God. Paul teaches in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The unrighteousness of man suppresses the truth of God. The sin of the human holds back its ability to acknowledge eternal truth. Sin does that. In verse 6, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. The wicked world is absolutely committed to its invincibility. It simply cannot admit weakness. That's why the reaction of the wicked world to biblical truth is scoffing a reaction of ignorance. Not, a, not an appropriate response, not a, not a logical response, not to debate the issues, not to rightly characterize what a, what, what, a, what a God-fearing man or woman says, but simply to laugh at it. Because scoffing reduces the argument to nil. We simply will not face the argument. They are so committed to their invincibility that they cannot admit the fact that their transgression and iniquity blinds them and leads them to destruction. That's the definition of lostness. Believing in the invincibility of the wicked human soul without the blood of Christ and denying any future destruction whatsoever. Solomon stresses this when he writes in Ecclesiastes 8.11 Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because God is not immediately imposing judgment on sinners right now, therefore people see this as a lack of any judgment at all and therefore pursue their own wickedness more aggressively. Fully set to do evil. Because justice and judgment are delayed, the lost believe that this justice, gentlemen, is denied. There will be no judgment. Verse 11 records the thoughts of the wicked as God has forgotten. He has hidden His face. He will never see it. So the, the second argument of the lost world is, is kind of an agnostic argument. And the idea is, if there is a God... He obviously doesn't care what happens. And I've had that argument with many people in my life through sharing the gospel. And it's always a very self-centered argument. There is no God because my marriage failed. 
There is no God because my mama got sick and died. There is no God because my son can't get off drugs. There is no God. It's never about the the cosmic effect of a truly cosmic God who's greater, larger than all creation. It is always about my personal experience with God. God becomes experiential for me. But because I am disappointed in the experiences, therefore, if God is there, He just doesn't care about anybody. God can't have a bigger plan. His ways cannot be higher than our ways because God exists in a paradigm of my own creation that says God serves me. God serves me and no one else. If I'm satisfied, then there's God. If I'm unsatisfied, then there is none. There is none. From a sense of forsakenness, humanity finds the impetus to do as they please. Because remember, either God isn't there, or He doesn't care. But if He is either isn't there, He doesn't care, it means, once again, I cannot do what I want to. I tried this God thing, and He didn't save my marriage. I tried this God thing, and He didn't, he didn't give me a better job. I tried this God thing, and He didn't work out here either. And so for that reason, I now have freedom to do what I want to do. Because either God is, is not there, or He doesn't care. As if the Lord of the universe is now too occupied, unconcerned, or impotent to deal with the issues of men. Now the prophet Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 8, 12, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures, for they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. It was, they had exactly the same argument. God just doesn't care. He can't see, he's blind, or he just doesn't care. God doesn't care what we do anymore. When men and women forget that God watches... That Christ cares for us and judges our actions. And understand, judgment is caring. Judgment is true, legitimate care. We do it with our own children all the time. We understand that we want our kids to work, brother, to the best of their ability in school, right? We understand that you're going to have times in which the best of that child's ability is a C. But we don't admit that, do we? Because with a little more help and a little more work and a little more encouragement, that C might be a B, right? Because that's how we love our children, to get the very best out of them. We love our children by... By pushing them to do things they wouldn't normally do. They wouldn't even attempt to do. They'd always take the easy way out. We love our kids by guiding them to the hard way. To the tough way. That's how we love them. God loves us just the same. That's what it means to be our divine parent. Is that Christ cares for us by judging our way. The fact that we face Him in judgment means we are led to be better than we would ever be on our own. Now, when we, when we don't see this, when men and women forget all of this, the vacuum created in our spirit is filled with twisted passions and warped actions that come only from the human heart. When we, when we have no God to please, we have no God to seek through prayer and study and through the power of His Spirit, when we have no one to worship, we have no standard that comes from outside of ourselves, brother. Then all we are left with is only our own twisted hearts. 
Finally, in verse 13, the condemned say, you will not call to account. Finally, he just says, we're not going to be judged. God cares so little about this or He's not existent. He's lame or he's, he's unable. And for that reason, we know there'll be no judgment. Look, the world around us is offended by the notion that its, that its actions can and must be judged by the God who has established the law by which we will all be judged. The world is offended by that. The world wants a non-judging God. The world wants an affirming God. The world wants a God that says, your brokenness is okay and you can do with it what you want to. The world wants a, a God that says, I know what happened to you and for that reason, you are no longer responsible for your actions. That's what the world wants. The world wants a God that, that so intensely feels its pain that it simply will not hold it to any standard outside of its own understanding or choosing. As Christ teaches in John chapter 12, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive me, receive my words as a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. The judge has been pronounced. That is the word of God. Humanity will always reject the reality of judgment. And it is one of the great losses of dark hearts and narrow minds. And it affects us all. Judgment is good for us. The idea that I know I will face God is good. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that I know that God cares enough to look at me and to judge my days. To hold me accountable. That is a good thing. The enemy that we see in this passage is not someone else. It's not the bad people or the criminals. Because we are all the bad people. And we are all the criminals. And we have insolently defied the rightful authority of God. We have all done this. Solomon says as much in one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, which says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The enemy that's described in Psalm chapter 10 is in the mirror. It's me, I was that enemy, and you were that enemy. We were all that enemy. We all were haters of God until God intervened. We all despised the loving God until God spoke to us. Without accepting the truth of coming judgment, the loss that we suffer in our arrogance is the consciousness of the presence of God daily in our lives. The restraining power of knowing that we will be judged and the understanding that the moral standards that we aspire to are universal in nature and not negotiable or malleable to the winds of human change. We seek a standard above ourselves, higher than we are. We seek acceptance by a God that lived among us but cared enough to pronounce into the world a better way of living and being. Hence the language of new creation. Not just in eternity in terms of, of sin debt, but right now, God has shown us a better way of living, of being. The justice of God plugs every human into a world bigger than themselves. Which is exactly what we talk about globalization and things like that nowadays. I'm talking about a, a, a cosmic 
way of connecting. Bigger than us. Connected to the very same God that Abraham cried out to. In the very same way. The justice of God puts every human into a world bigger than themselves, which is centered on an ethicality that is conceptually beyond the selfish desires of people. Because see, God did not just leave us here, but He gave us He gave us a book of standards that are bigger than ourselves, in which the focus is never, brother, on me or on you or what's best for us, but what's best for the kingdom. God has led our hearts and our minds to view the world in a different way. Hence, we would be a people who welcome death and hate our lives. Focused on the leadership of an eternal king, Jesus. Hence the end of it. In verse chapter, verses 16 through 18, we learn the final lessons of this incredible psalm. Our Lord in heaven is the everlasting, infinite King of all creation. The King forever and ever. Look, when He returns to earth, Jesus Christ, our Deliverer, the one and only perfect sacrifice for the sins of His people, His name is etched on His clothing and on His thigh, marking Him so that none can deny. This is an undeniable fact. Of, of the end of time. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 16 we read. On his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. We have no doubt who this psalm addresses. The king of kings and Lord of lords. Who is the rightful king of all creation. Who reigns in authority over every single created thing. That would be Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate king. We serve the forever and ever king. Better still. The Lord who reigns eternally. Is not death to the suffering of his subjects. We understand that though we are the problem, as much as anyone else who draws breath, we also understand there are going to be times which in the church we're going to suffer. And we're going to cry out to the living God. And we're going to cry out in righteousness and justice, Brother Brian. We haven't done wrong. But we have been wronged. And we're going to cry out that way. And God hears. He hears. There's no doubt He hears. Look, but we know that Jesus Christ will hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. That God promises that He hears and that He will encourage and He will defend. The God who rules and judges does not fail to understand the needs of His people. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Even as sinners, we understand that we cry out to a God that could condemn us in our sin, but yet is merciful and understanding in our sin. Because our Lord understands even the depths of our sin and denial. Who does not condemn but sympathized so much that he sent the king to die for a world of slaves. He didn't send just anyone. He sent God the Son, Christ Jesus, the rightful king. The king came to die for the crimes that we committed. 
then as violent natured and seditious sinners, we are not cut off, but welcomed by the King who shed His blood so that we can now, in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because the King came and shed His blood, we now can go to His throne. He purchased the entrance that we now can use with confidence. Through mercy and forgiveness, the reign of terror that we have over ourselves can end tonight. And He can do that tonight at the very throne of grace. The place from which we should be cut off, but the blood of Jesus has opened wide the door through which we walk with confidence now to our beloved King. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach this. And I pray, Father God, that I've preached it rightly. I pray, God, that I have, I have preached exactly what you sent me to preach, Father God. I've done it without arrogance, Father God. But I've done it, Father God, in, in deep compassion, understanding, Father, that I'm as much an enemy of the faith of Christ in my loss when I, when I was lost, Father God, as anyone who ever was. But I understand also, Father God, how good you are. That in your mercy, Father God, you've called sinners like me to yourself, Father. And that you're doing so right now, Father. There are people right now listening, Lord, who've never embraced you as Lord, as the Lord and Savior of their lives, Father God. And I pray right now, Lord, that those stony hearts would be broken, Father. That you would, God, you would break their hearts and you would lead their, their tongues to confess, Father God, and their hearts to cry out in repentance and mercy now. Please, God, do that. We pray, God, now that you will, Father God, solve the problem of sin for someone tonight, Father God, before it is everlasting too late. We love you, Lord. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.